Okay, the scripture reading today will be from Mark 1, 14-20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, uh, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee excuse me, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. Inside the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as, as we go through the message this morning. While you're doing that, let me take this opportunity to, uh, to thank publicly uh, once again uh, Everett Heiston, one of our shepherds, and Barry Newton, who is uh, one of our staff ministers for the great work they did last week in, in preaching while I was gone. Uh, I, I feel very blessed to uh, have been given... Um, uh, some time to uh, to take care of my mother as she is recuperating from some surgery. I'm grateful for uh, for all of your prayers on her behalf. Uh, yesterday and today are the first days that she has um, since that surgery um, uh, been at the house by herself and on her own. Uh, my youngest brother left yesterday to return to the Metroplex, and she uh, or Friday is when he left. And so yesterday and today she's she's doing pretty well. And I, I want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for, for all of the prayers on behalf of my mom. And thank you to, uh, to Everett and uh, to Barry for taking on that extra work uh, last Sunday uh, while I was out, out of town. Uh, we're going to, to be thinking about discipleship this morning out of Mark chapter 1. Great chapter, extraordinary chapter on discipleship. And I want us to begin with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into this text. Father, the... the the, the love that you have shown to us is vast. And the call that comes to us as we find our lives turning more toward you and our, our being inclined in your direction is a call to become like your son Jesus in all that we do. In, in the way that we think, where we place our affections, uh, the, the direction that we use our, our resources, our monies, and, and the goods and the gifts that You have give us, given us in this life. And as we think about the words of these texts, Father, that we're going to look at this morning, what we're asking in the name of Jesus is that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that the, the, the weight of eternity that is invested in these words as they have come to us, Father, will fall upon us heavily in such a way that it transforms us and helps us to understand at even more profound levels what it is that You're doing in the world today through Your church. And this, Father, is what we ask for, the eyes to see, the ears to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, fishing was a pretty big deal in Galilee during the time of Jesus. 
uh, fishing boats would, would dot those, those shores along the coast. They, they would not go very far out into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's really just this gigantic lake. It's from north to south. It's about 12 miles from east to west. In the longest places, about 6 to 7 miles in width. And because of all of the folklore about deep waters and the other side of the lake and all of these kinds of things with unclean and demons and evil and powers and those kinds of things, those, those boats would stay pretty close to the shore. This is fear of the bad weather, fear of all of those kinds of things. It's up there on that north shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, back about, about the year 2000, maybe 1999, can't remember. I'm kind of at that age where the years run together, uh, 15 years back, you know. And I had one of the most poignant moments as a disciple of Jesus on that north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Standing, standing there looking south across that, that beautiful lake. We look to our right, to the west, and there's the Arbel Pass. There's the, the Wadi of the Doves just on the other side of that. Capernaum, or excuse me, Nazareth. And you know that as you're, you're looking through that pass and, and through that mountain range, that just on the side of that is the place where Jesus grew up and that He passed on His way to Capernaum right through those Arbel Cliffs and, and that Wadi of the Doves on His way to Capernaum where He was going to make His new home. Back over your left shoulder and, and to, the, uh, to the east is Capernaum with its big gates and the gigantic bougainvilleas that, would, that, would, that, that covered up that gigantic gateway going into that city. And as we're standing there on the north end of the, the Sea of Galilee at one of these little coves, the professor begins to read the text that Sean just read for us. And he reads about Jesus coming on His way to Capernaum. He stops at a cove and there's Peter and Andrew calls them, make you fishers of men. They followed him, dropped their nets, went with him. He comes to this next cove where the sons of Zebedee are mending their nets. And he called them and they left their father and family and hired men and went with him as disciples. And the professor said, that cove is where you're standing right now. That cove, which is spread by a warm spring, Throughout antiquity to this very day is the very cove where fishermen to this very day wash and mend their nets. And it was a surreal moment for me. As a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, I'm standing in the place where He called His first disciples. I'm standing in the place where some human beings for the very first time began to follow Jesus. Mark chapter 1 is an extraordinary chapter on discipleship, but I want to focus on this curious thing that Jesus says to Peter and to Andrew and to those impetuous sons of Zebedee. He says in verse 17, Follow me, and I will make you become, say it with me church, fishers of men. Say it again, fishers of men. Obviously, there is a wordplay going on here. I mean, they're fishermen. He's asking them to fish. But I think there's something more that's going on in this interchange between Jesus and these first disciples. Why, when they heard Him say this, come and follow Me, I'll make you fishers of men, why did they drop everything at that point and follow Jesus? What is it that they heard Him say? Well, I think one of the things that you find in the Old Testament is that in that Old Testament, God is the original fisher of men. 
just a couple of sample verses to, to kind of get our mind around this concept of, Jesus, uh, of God as the original fisher of men. In Ezekiel chapter 29, beginning in verse 3, Behold, and this is in that section of Ezekiel where there are these judgment pronouncements made on nations that are not faithful to God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers that has said, and this is Pharaoh speaking, My Nile is mine. And I myself have made it. And God says to that kind of thinking, I will put hooks in your jaws and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers. So you see there the symbolism of, of fishing. In Amos chapter 4, one of the early 8th century prophets, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Not the most cheery verses you'll find in the Old Testament, right? I mean, admittedly, they are ominous and they are dark. They deal with judgment. But that's, that's paddled down river a little bit with this idea of judgment. Let's go a little below the surface about what judgment, biblically speaking, is all about. Now, when we, we think of judgment, and rightly so, we think of the bad stuff happening. We think about castigation. We think of punishment. We think of pain. We think of danger. And all of those things are so... But judgment is also this. Judgment is an intervention to stop the evil. Judgment is, a, is an intervention to stop the evil. It's foreshadowing that evil will be stopped by God. Growing up, uh, I had two brothers, three of us, no sisters. We didn't have anything really gentle around the house. Uh, it was pretty rough uh, when we came to playing and messing around with each other. Lots of chaos, a lot of anarchy in the house. Uh, I think we drove my mother up one wall and down the other a lot of that time. She regularly referred to us as heathens. We were her heathens nonetheless, but we were heathens, right? I, I mean, I thought in German, our, our, our uh, family motto was, Ich bin Heidnisch, I am a heathen. And sometimes that anarchy, that, that roughhousing, and, and just you know the craziness that boys that are young would get out of control, and mom would threaten us with six very, very profound words, you know, just fraught with ominous danger. She would say, wait till your dad gets home. Ominous words. Fraught with the threat of the weapon of mass distract, the destruction that dad wore around his waist to hold his pants up would be unleashed against us. And the day would, uh, the, you know, the, the moment would arrive in the day when dad would get to the house and the sky would darken and the moon would turn to blood and <laughs> the judgment would stop the evil. That's what a lot of the judgment events in the Bible are all about. They foreshadow a greater judgment in which evil will disappear forever. And quite frankly, that was something that Israel was thinking about a lot at this particular time in the Bible. Uh, Judaism, I mean, to talk about homogenous Judaism at this time was impossible. Josephus talks about four, and there were much more than this. I mean, we find more than this in the Bible itself. But uh, Josephus, as sort of an outsider writing about Christianity and about Judaism, as an insider, a Jew writing about Judaism, says that there were at least four different philosophies of Judaism during the time of Jesus. There were Essenes and Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and Zealots. 
The priesthood that is operating in, in Jerusalem at the temple is suspect and had been since the time of the Hasmoneans. There were, there were certain groups of, of Jews who were devout and orthodox in the practice of Judaism that thought that, that the, the priesthood was apostate and wouldn't even come into Jerusalem and let alone get close to that temple. Economically, things are just a disaster. I mean, you have some scholars today that write uh, about what's happening in terms of of the the, the ecology of taxation in the first century, and some of them put it as high as 65 or 70 percent. Rome would take a lot of money. There was a lot of national uh, Jewish taxes as well, as you know from reading the Bible, but there was a tremendous amount of taxation, and people were being moved off of land that had been in their, in their, their family for generations. That's why day laborers are starting to show up in all of the parables of, of Jesus. That is very, very relevant stuff to talk about day laborers in those parables. And then maybe worst of all, it doesn't look like Rome is going anywhere in the, in the near future. And in the midst of this kind of angst, idea of you know, the nation not going in the right direction, that the, that the world is not right side up, Jesus shows up on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee and says to some men, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And Peter and Andrew and the sons of Zebedee hear this and they think about God. Thinking about God intervening to bring a hard stop to the evil is triggered. And the Messiah says to them, follow me, which means that he's calling them to make a break from the normal way that they live their life. Their lives are no longer going to be based on fishing, but their lives are going to be based on God's kingdom agenda for world and humanity. And in Mark chapter 1, to be called to follow the Messiah and to be made a fisher of men meant at least four things. There's a lot of things we could talk about. I just want to focus on four things. The first one, you recognize the true king. To follow Jesus and to be made into a fisher of men means that you have recognized the true king. The chapter, chapter 1 of Mark begins, it opens up with a voice crying in the wilderness, a very, very... Uh, tremendously important, spiritually speaking, and, and, and kingdom-specific message about, about what God is doing. And this herald, who is John the Baptist, says, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Now what he's doing is he's actually acting like a herald. He's saying, you know, get ready. The king is coming to town. The king is coming. And it was always helpful to a city or to some government administration to know well in advance that that the king is coming because there were things that you did to make sure that the king was welcomed properly. This is what you do when a king comes to town. Because kings don't like to sweat. They don't like to stumble when they travel. So you raise up the low places. You bring down those high places. You straighten out those roads. And make it easy for the king to come into your city. And then Mark tells us that after John was put into prison, he's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Jesus begins to preach. And in verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Some of the translations say, The kingdom of God is near. And then two very important things. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the Gospel. 
Now, how is it that Jesus Himself, as, as, as the son of a carpenter coming out of Nazareth and going into Capernaum, how is it that He can say the kingdom of God is near? It's because He's the King. Wherever He goes as King, the kingdom is near. But the King is bigger than a King who is just big enough to defeat Rome. The King is bringing God's renewing power And He's bringing God's presence back into God's creation. This was all over the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, the world is such a mess that the glory of God has to be reintroduced into the world. It's gotten so out of hand. People have gone so far in their thinking and living and their their sensibilities and their sensitivities to all things spiritual have gotten to the place where God's glory is not even very recognizable. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking to David about a kingdom that God is going to establish out of David's line. And it's a a kingdom in the future. And it's a kingdom that will never come to an end. It will never pass away. Going back to Isaiah chapter 11, the king is going to fully represent God. When he comes and you see this king, you know that you're looking at somebody special. He's going to be the one that represents God. And he's going to bring harmony in all of these relationships, in all of these places around the world where there's strife and there's violence. Jeremiah chapter 31, God is going to enter into this new covenant with His people. They are going to know Him because they are being healed from their sin. And then one of the really big ones, going back to Isaiah. Isaiah 55. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Thorn bushes and nettles. Nettles and thorn bushes. Thorns, thorn bushes, nettles, nettles, thorn bushes. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, you have... The, the fall of humanity and you have the aftermath, the fallout because of that rebellion towards God. You have what the scholars call the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the Gospel. It happens right after the original sin, the eating of the forbidden fruit. And God says to, to all of the, the principal players, He says to the snake, cursed to crawl on your belly in the dust all your days. To the woman, He says, there will be pain in the bringing forth of life on earth. Desire will be for your husband. And to the man, He said, it's not going to be an easy life. It's going to be tough because of what has happened. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to bring forth the food that is going to feed you and feed the woman and feed the children. And to the earth, Cursed with thorns and thistles and thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles was sort of symbolic of that curse. And Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 55, says that one day there's going to be a reversal of all of that where there's that curse of the thorns and the thistles. It's going to be reversed. And instead of thorn bushes, you're going to have a cypress. And instead of the nettles, the myrtle, it's going to be beauty and life and things that produce life and things that sustain life that's going to be found. It's going to be reversed. The world had been a paradise at one time. 
Not only because God had created it so, but because God Himself was sovereign. He, that meant that He utterly and completely ruled it. But then you have the serpent and the original temptation and the eating of the fruit and man and woman falling. God's is, 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 is thought by the first couple through the temptation of the serpent to not have their best interests at heart. God's Word that is powerful enough to create everything is now not powerful enough to trust. And they, they sin and there's the fallenness in the world, the creation, everything, society, people, health begins to fall apart and to disintegrate and to unravel. You ever thought what happens when you give your preschooler the keys to your Corvette? There's a lot of things that happen and they're all bad. <laughs> there are red lights that are ignored. There are curbs that are jumped. There are lampposts that are dinged. There are garage doors that are smashed. Brick walls are, are knocked over. In other words... Violent, random disintegration. Things begin to unravel and fall apart all over the place because a preschooler is driving a Corvette. But here's the thing. It's not the Corvette's fault. It's not the Corvette's fault. Nothing is wrong with the Corvette except that a preschooler has his hands on the steering wheel. Brothers and sisters, you cannot participate in God's human project as a fisher of men unless you have taken your hands off of the steering wheel of the management of your own life because you recognize the true King. And you understand this truth that humans flourish when they follow the King. Humans flourish when they follow the King. That has to be a settled fact of your heart if you are to participate in God's human project. But not only do you recognize the true king, but a second thing, the true king is recognized in you. The true king is recognized in you. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, uh, but I do want to address uh, the, you know, these, these strange little stories about the, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation story. First question. Have you noticed how dangerous it is to think one-dimensionally? We've talked about this before. My, my husband is a paycheck. My wife is to cook and to clean and to take care of the kids. The, the problem in one-dimensional thinking is that it's not always false in the sense that you've, you're not seeing something truthfully. You're just not seeing it completely. The problem with one-dimensional thinking is to miss the full significance, to miss the full beauty of the things that are multidimensional. And this is what we do with baptism. We read at the beginning of the chapter that baptism is about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And we think one-dimensionally about baptism. It's for salvation, which it is a part of. But then we struggle and we try to get our mind around the fact that Jesus Himself got baptized. And this is where we begin to see that baptism is more than just salvation. Baptism is also about aligning your life with the will of God. 
To be baptized is not only to, to repent and to find forgiveness, but it's also about the fulfilling of righteousness, of aligning your life up with God. So here's the second question. Jesus is baptized by John. What happens immediately after the baptism of Jesus and He aligns His life with God and God declares with that voice coming from heaven that this is My Son? Those are temptations. But listen very carefully to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled Him. The Spirit impelled Him. The Spirit of God impelled Him to go into the wilderness. The Spirit is driving Jesus into the wilderness. And then, verse 13, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, Matthew 4 gives us more detail. You'll remember that the first temptation was after 40 days of not eating anything. Satan shows up and says, if you're really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says to him, man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. From the Word of God. God's Word. Basically meaning, I'm not going to make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. I'm not going to disbelieve that God has my best interests at heart. I'm going to trust the God who impelled me by His Spirit into this wilderness to bring me out. I will trust God. And then He takes him to a high place there around the temple, probably right there into the middle of the marketplace, there on that southwest corner of the wall. And he says, jump, and he quotes Scripture, says the angels will not even allow you to hit bottom, and everybody will see it and claim that you're... God, you will get the glory. And Jesus says, and the temptation is to get the glory without the cross. To get the glory without doing it God's way. The third temptation cuts right to the chase. It's all about who you're going to put at the center of your life. Who you worship or what you worship is always at the core, the center of your, of your focal point. It, it, it is your focal point for all of your life. And Satan takes him to a place and says, look at all of this kingdom and all of this stuff. I'll give it to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. You worship God alone. And when Jesus called those first disciples to follow Him and said that He would make them fishers of men, He meant more than just forgiveness of sins. It meant more than just learning and transmitting Jesus' teachings. Teachings. Jesus will make us as He made them to be fishers of men. That recognition and that dedication in following Him leads to transformation where more and more and more and more God comes to the very center of everything that we do. And quite frankly, that's what gives credibility to our message and to our ministry. No one believes that they will flourish in following the King unless they see it visibly and authentically and genuinely in the lives of His followers. Two last points very quickly. Not only do you recognize the true King, and the true King is going to be recognized in you, but you express the true message. Have you ever noticed how how much the world is just bogged down in, in, in legalism. It doesn't even have to be of, of, a, of a biblical sort. I mean, you read and, and think and, and listen, you know, if you do this, then you're going to be saved. If you do that, 
You'll find nirvana. If you do these five steps, then you're cured. And it always, 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 always falls short. You know, when I read the Old Testament, I always have two responses. The first is, I I feel grateful that God is not disengaged with humanity because of our rebellion and how we've just torn up His creation. I feel such appreciation and gratefulness that God in love is still engaged with human beings. But then secondly, I, I feel pitiful. And at times, incredibly, profoundly ugly because I see without a shadow of a doubt that I cannot live the law the way the law was intended to form human beings. And so at the very beginning of His ministry, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent, turn your life around, and believe in the what? Gospel. Now, the word gospel was not unknown in the ancient world. Gospel was a, a word that was well known. It did not mean philosophy. It did not reference the daily news. It was, it was, it was not the stuff that you find on the back page of the sports page. Gospel was always a reference to a great historical event. It was always the biggest headlines in history. And there's the difference. When the king appears calling people to believe the gospel, he's asking them to believe the message of his life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will define that gospel very, very clearly. Uh, with, with, with tremendous clarity, he will define it as three words. Death and burial and what else? Resurrection. That death is about, about love. About an uncanny love. A profound love. A, 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 a love that is, that is absolutely mind-boggling at times. I mean, do we really believe that the nails in the Roman soldiers kept Jesus on the cross? It was love. We sang a few minutes ago, Buried and carried our sins far away. And the resurrection. The resurrection is glorious and the resurrection is beautiful. I wish we had more time this morning to talk about the implications of the resurrection and how it brings healing to the world. But the resurrection was an event of history, not a philosophy, but an event in history, a fact of history that was meant to be talked about and contemplated and reflected on. And when they tried to get Jesus to get involved in a certain kind of ministry that did not involve the preaching of the Gospel, He said at the end of of chapter 1, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that's why I came. Friends, the Gospel is the news that changes the world. And then lastly, and very quickly, you embody the true ministry. In verses 32 and 34, the evening has come, the Sabbath has ended, sun has set, and the people in Capernaum begin bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and He healed many who were, with Ill, who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, and He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. At the heart of true ministry... In the kingdom of God is healing. Not always easy. Healing not always feel good, but healing. And think of it this way, that the first step of ultimate healing of our souls is we are forgiven of our sins and brought into relationship with, with, with God Himself 
begins with repentance. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals people who were enslaved to demons, who possessed them and controlled human beings who are made in the image of God. And He brought them out of that enslavement to those demons and those that, that possessed them. Uh, Jesus heals people who are ill and just feel bad in their bodies. And, and Jesus heals the outcast. Think of that leper in Mark chapter 1 that, that had to be proactive in telling people that they had to get away from Him. It wasn't that he was just walking down the street and people could tell by the way that he walked or the, the, the way that he dressed or she dressed that she was in a certain category of human being. You either take him or leave him. But this guy, this woman, who these lepers, whenever they came into contact with human beings that were whole, they had to cover their face up and say, get away from me because I'm unclean and keep yelling it until everybody scattered. And here is Jesus, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Nothing's made without him, John chapter 1 says. And he could have said the word, right? He could have said, be healed, and he's going to be healed. He's, he, could, he could have said, you know, be clean, and he's clean. But he reaches out and he touches it. There is this intimate contact, physical contact, between Jesus and an outcast human being that's just different than saying, be healed. The hope of San Antonio, our city, are churches that are filled with disciples that Jesus has made into fisher of men who recognize Jesus as King, who, who, who are the kind of disciples in which the true King is recognized in them, who are not afraid to talk about the news, the Gospel, the true message that changes the world and live out in ministry every day the implications of that Gospel, of being converted, being changed, being transferred one, one, from one kingdom to another by the salvation, not afraid to talk about it and to live out the implications of it on a daily basis. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And one of the things that is really just a challenge for everybody here this morning is where do I fit in that process of being used by Jesus as a follower of Jesus who has heard Him say, follow me, where do I fit in that, that spectrum of becoming a fisher of men that is helping to bring human beings into God's kingdom? And perhaps even more basic is the question, where am I in my relationship with God? You know, have I fully made that that recognition that Jesus is the true King, the one King who is coming into the world to save the world and to save human beings and, and to bring about God's presence in their life and God's rule in their life again. Have I recognized that to the extent that when I hear Him say, follow me, I'm ready to go? What Jesus is saying to you this morning is follow Him. Follow Him. And we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front that if you're wanting to find some answers to what it really means to follow Him, these shepherds are going to answer those questions for you. And we invite you to come down and talk to Him as we stand and praise God together. Oh, to Jesus 